0: The bins of boat, and I survive the sails, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to Lizer.
1: Good afternoon. It's time for boat talk on solar powered. Salty Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, and WERU.org. Boat Talk is a temporarily muted call-in show with damp spirits. When we get past the pandemic, we will be back in the studio to take phone calls. In the meantime, this is pre-recorded articles of current interest. I'm Alan Sprague. Mike Joyce, the other rusty anchor, will sail in shortly. First, and probably most current, is a Zoom presentation starting at 6.30 this evening. Good friend Art Payne will be show-and-telling Boats Light Up My Life. You may remember Art was on with Steve Callahan last fall. He's a good storyteller and an excellent photographer, so I expect this will be a beautiful presentation. Go to weru.org calendar tab and click on community calendar and Boats Light Up My Life is listed in today's offerings or just Google Belfast Free Library to get the link. Next, a final report on the Talisker's Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. All but three of the 21 boats have finished. Three singles still out there. Singles, you would expect, would be the slowest class. It's pretty hard to eat and sleep and row at the same time. The winner was a four-man team named Row for Cancer. They finished in... 32 days, 22 hours, averaging 92 miles a day. That's moving right along. The best thing with these teams is that they are rowing for charities, raising money either by the mile or by the stroke for many worthy causes. Check them out at Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. That's whiskey with no E. On the web, the Bristol Gulls, we did an interview with Sophia D'Ambrosi last October. Sophia and the other three ladies finished second in the all-female class, and using GPS data, they rode 2,765 miles, averaging 74 miles a day, and they finished in 46 days, 7 hours, and 50 minutes. Congratulations, ladies. Quite a few years ago, a proud new owner took delivery of his 40-something foot sailboat down in Rhode Island, and with a bunch of his buddies, he set out for Mount Desert Island. They set Mount Desert Rock as a waypoint for their autopilot, where they would turn more northerly to head straight up to MDI. They hit thick fog on the way and discovered that it was a bad idea to make hard objects turning points. They sailed straight onto the rock and had to call for help. My friend John
2: Mayhew describes coming on the scene. So now we had lightning, we had fog, it was raining, uh, it was dark in the pocket. Big, well, you know, four to six, big enough. And uh, we uh, got up over the, close to where the boat was, and then we could just make out the lights of the boat. We couldn't see the boat at all. We could make out the lights, and the owner was kind of guiding us in on the radio to let us know, you know, how to come in, at, how, what angle to come in the rock to, because we, like I say, we were totally blind. We couldn't see a thing. It was just, you know, just like being blindfolded. We got in close where we could judge where the lights were on the boat and what our position was. And we set a big anchor. And once we got that set, uh, my brother got in the inflatable and went into, into the rock. Well, when he got about 15, 20 feet away from the rock, the swell picked him up and carried him up onto the rock and set him on the rock and then washed back out. Just, just missed the rudder with his head. And you get in there and the swells were already starting to break in around the the keel and um, up along the port side of the boat, which was was laid over on its port side. So we determined there wasn't going to be any time to secure any airbags on there. So uh, we decided the best thing to do, with time being short, was to get a line on it and to keep it from going further up the rock as the tide came in. And uh, by this time the swells were starting to rock the boat a little bit and... um, So we decided the best thing to do was to get a line on it and hold it straight out, which is what we did. And it took us three attempts to get a line back out to our boat because of the conditions, you know, and trying to do it in an inflatable or whatever. And we finally did get it out there and uh, hooked onto it. once we hooked onto it, we put a strain on the stern of the boat, uh, hooked by a stern cleat, and we started putting a strain on it. And we actually opened the landing craft right up and held it there. And as the boat as the water started coming in under the boat the boat started giving a little bit and coming a little bit more our way we weren't really pulling it off the rock at this time we were just kind of turning it on the rock so it was in line more in line with our boat and uh... then as the swells coming in i mean it picked it up and tipped it over three or four times back and forth for us to pick it up stand it on the keel and flop it over onto the port side and then the back backwash would come down off the rock and, Flop it over onto the starboard side. The boat took a pretty good thrashing, um, you know, which told us it was a good thing that we got there and we did because it, it wouldn't have taken much of that, you know. Before it would have been, it would have been nothing. I would have pulverized it right on the rock and then sucked it back out into the sea. But we, uh, with by holding the steady strain on it, um, eventually one good swell came in and lifted it. When it did, it freed it a little bit and it came towards us, and we thought we had it, and then it uh, the keel hung up on another chunk of the rock the bottom of the keel st- stood up on one of the ledges and then it rocked it back and forth two or three more times until it got just a little bit of water and enough water underneath it where we could pull it free of the of the rock again and uh once we got it free of the rock we started hauling it away from the rock as fast as we could but the boat was kind of overpowering ours because it was so much larger than our landing craft that we didn't, um, you know, have complete control of the boat. So as soon as we got it away from the rock enough, we felt it was safe to take the strain off it and back up to the boat. So I could jump on. I had already had my dry suit on, and uh, I had a flashlight. And, you know, wanted to get on the boat and see if we were taking all water. We needed to get the crash pumps on. You know, it was kind of a hurry up operation at that point. get on the boat and realize that we weren't taking on any water or if it was the bilge pumps were keeping up with it because it wasn't floating any of the cabin sole boards and uh we uh did a quick assessment on it got a line on the bow got the hawser line changed over from the stern to the bow and put a heavier hawser on it and we're getting rigged up to start towing it away from the rock and uh that's when we realized we didn't have any steering so then i had to unload the Lazarette and get in there and I realized at this time that the steering cables had come off in the quadrant and they were wrapped a couple of times around the rudder post. So now I had to take a pair of bolt cutters. And that this meant the boat had to come back the landing craft had to come back up against us again so I could get they could hand me a pair of bolt cutters. I got a pair of bolt cutters and get in there and cut one of the steering cables. And once I did that then I could spin the rudder back the way it was supposed to be and get emergency tiller in place. Once we did that and got the emergency tiller in place, then we took it under tow and started heading back in the shore. And it took us around six hours to tow it back in. We really it was a struggling match because of a following sea and the boat, the sailboat being so much bigger and heavier than our landing craft. It was uh, about an hour at a time on the tiller is all you could take on the uh, emergency tiller, and then we had to. Um, you know, change over, we'd have to switch over back at sea. There was a lot of jumping back and forth from boat to boat, which is a little dangerous in those conditions. But, uh, you know, we did it, and, and say, take a shift of an hour or so on the tiller, and we went back and forth, and we finally got it hauled home, and we took it over to the Hinckley Company and uh, put it on the dock at the Hinckley Company. And when the Yard crew came in, as soon as they had the water, they lifted it out. And that's where she sits now. What, what was the damage to the boat? Oh, it. Uh, there wasn't much holding the keel on. The, the keel took it pretty hard. <clears throat> you could see where the keel fastened to the hull; it was separated all the way around in pretty good shape. There was a good, a good gap there, but it at least stretched out the keel bolts. If it didn't; it probably popped a couple of them. It was still obviously still on there, but it wasn't on there by much. And it scuffed up the bottom of the keel pretty good, where it ground on the rocks, and uh, tore about six inches off the bottom of the rudder. The rudder was all flayed open on the bottom where she came come across the rocks. And there was three or four places down each side of the hull that looked like, uh, oh, the only thing I can compare it to is it looked like it took a hard-boiled egg. After
1: the insurance company looked at the boat, it was totaled. And that was the end of the story for that boat. John Johanson, editor of Maine Coastal News and frequent Boat Talk contributor, has been following the
3: Vendee Globe, round the world race. Clarissa Creamer, I think that's her last name. She's a French woman. She finished today in 87 days, 2 hours and 24 minutes. And she is the 12th finisher. She's the first woman across the line. And I think she set the record for a woman. But I don't know how how by how much. But what was impressive about the the Vendee Globe was that... Uh, on the first day of finishers, eight boats came across the line, all within nineteen hours of each other. And and the first place finisher didn't win. <laughs> Charlie Dillon or D- Dallin, I don't know, D A L I N in a Piva, he came across the line first, but he but Yannick Basthaven, he had uh, redress from the rescue, even though he didn't rescue the person he and two others, Jean Lacam and Boris Herman, both had all had three had re, uh, redress and Jean Lacam had quite a bit of time because he's the one that actually did rescue him and had taken a lot of time to find him. Uh, but anyways, uh, no, uh, Yannick, he was the one that actually corrected ahead. I think he finished like fourth or fifth and he, Corrected out to be to win by what was it three hours little less than three hours. So you go all the way around the world 24 25 or twenty six thousand miles, and all of your eight competitors are within
4: <laughs>
3: are within nineteen hours. Yeah, it was the closest Vande that they've ever had. You know today. Uh, the worst part of it was, was that they weren't even close to the record. Cause the record is like 74 days for the Vendee, And they just didn't have the conditions, especially in the Southern ocean. It was just horrendous. You know, it, it just wasn't conducive for fast speeds. You know, they were always getting beat up. They had to go around storms and all kinds of stuff or got into storms. But, uh, you know, some of the other, uh, you know stories that were good about, uh, or that were interesting. I've been following Jeremy Bayou. He's on Shirel, but he started nine days after everybody. He's the next to probably finish. He's in thirteenth now, and, but he's he made his way up through the fleet because he was all the way back to thirty uh, third when he started. Well, he started, and then he suffered a uh, some uh, some breakage. And came back in. I think he had hit something. So he had problems with his uh, foils and his rudder and stuff like that. So it took nine days to make repairs to his boat. And he did really well. I mean, he had the fastest time from Cape uh, of Good Hope to the Cape Horn. You know, not by a lot, but he had the fastest time when you timed them all together. But anyways, you know, the next boats that are going to finish, it's going to be a group. That are going to probably another, probably six boats will cross pretty close to each other because they're all within 91 to 90% of uh, the finish. Yeah, there's going to be six boats. There's two boats in front of them that are, you know, one's 97. That's Jeremy. He's only got 49 miles to go to get to the finish line. Oh, no, 700, I'm sorry, 750 miles to the finish, and the guy behind him is 796. But I don't think the guy behind him has got the speed because he doesn't have foils. And if the foils are working, he's going to be quicker. But, no, it's been a good Vendee. There's only been, what was it, eight retired boats. So that's not too bad out of the whole thing. One was dismasted. Another one just completely disappeared. You know, and the rest of them just broke. You know, one of them had a lot of problems with electrical systems, things like that. But it's been interesting. It's been a good race. And it, what was interesting? I was down and I interviewed Willis Beale for an article on his model building. And what did he? What has he been reading? The Vande. <laughs> You know, so it's interesting who finds it fascinating, and there's a lot of them that find it fascinating because it's crazy. I mean, you go around the world in a sixty-foot boat by yourself, nonstop, with and you can't get any help. America is out of the Americas Cup. Yeah, America's out, but you can understand why. You know, when you lose the boat and you can't sail for two weeks, you know, you probably stayed where you were, or you maybe not even where you were because. You have to still dial that boat back in. I saw the big hole that was in the hull after they crashed. Yeah, but did you see what they did after when they put her back in the water? She had two Band-Aids. And you ready what was on the Band-Aids? Every country that was there helped them get back on the water. So there was an American flag. There was a British flag. There was a New Zealand flag and an Italian flag because every team helped them get back on the water. You know, you just have to understand that, you know, when you lost two weeks of sailing time, you're behind the eight ball. And that first race that they were out, they were in what, 20 to 25 knots of wind. And they were having a hard time controlling the boat. Now, maybe the boat wasn't dialed in. Maybe, you know, who knows? But, you know, if had they been sailing, they probably would have had a lot more chance of doing a lot better than what they did.
1: Next. Mike and I had a Zoom meeting with Leroy Weed, YouTube phenomenon, and thanks to the Center for Maine Coastal Fisheries. Here's Mike.
5: Of course, we're uh, still trying to do Boat Talk, a call-in show, without any access to uh, callers. And really, uh, couldn't miss the audience more. Um, seek feedback through the computer. Is, uh the way it can be done now through the email um barefoot blues hour i'm sorry barefoot boat talk at hotmail.com or boat talk at gmail.com or info at weru. O-R-G. slash boat talk um you know comments criticisms any kind of feedback is highly highly uh you know, desirable at this point. Can't wait to open up the phones again someday. Now, we uh, just did a remarkable little interview with our friend Leroy Weed, a retired uh, lobster fisherman down in Stonington, Maine. He is a volunteer at the Center for uh, Coastal Fisheries down in Stonington. Our friend uh, Dr. Paul Anderson from Brunswick, among other fame. So, um, Leroy is a older, uh, fella who, uh, was born in the fishing family and has a pretty good sense of humor. He has no, um, what do you call it? Uh, high tech skills. He has GPS and a uh, radar in his boat, but has a dial up fo- dial phone. He's still trying to figure out never been on the interweb and, um uh, he started answering tourist questions about lobster fishery and got filmed, put up on YouTube, and it took off. So Ask Leroy is the thing on the YouTube. And uh, Leroy is a YouTube star who's never been on the YouTube. His wife's never watched him. She's not that impressed. And uh, the thing is that, uh, like you say, Leroy is pretty easy to hang out with. So the thing about this Interview, if you want to call it. it really wasn't. As uh, we were trying to Zoom with Alan, John, and myself with Leroy. Leroy has a uh, great fellow named Tate Yoder that produces every, everything for Leroy. It takes care of all the technical stuff. Um, we just sort of hung out with Leroy on Zoom. And uh, to say that Leroy is easy to hang out with is an understatement. Well like say, uh, you know, know the same stuff and people and um didn't actually in terms of a regular interview, so to speak, as we do it um didn't ask the first question until you know about a half an hour in and uh but it was just delightful hanging out with leroy we uh, want to do more in the future so uh, that's uh, the big thing we did this time and uh. Again, how much fun would it be when we can all hang out together and just talk about stuff we know so much and, uh, you know, people that know more than we do. So, uh, we brought weed this morning, Boat Talk.
4: Uh, pretty much stay fishing. Yeah, Local. I have over the years. I've, I haven't been this uh, last year on account kind of the, I had some health problems, so I hung it up for a year. But uh, I hope to go back this next year.
1: Yeah. Uh, Speaking of that, what happened to your hand?
4: I got caught in a conveyor. Uh,
1: Loading fish?
4: Loading lobsters. The lobsters was coming up from the dock. You can see this one still puffed up. Oh, yeah. And uh, the beckett on the crate got caught on the rollers. And there was like six more crates coming up, and I couldn't get the rope free under the roller to get the thing out of the way. So the ones came up behind it, hit it, and flipped it up into the air. And of course, it came down on my hand. But uh, yeah. that uh, I'm still I'm still dealing with it.
1: Yeah, should have an automatic shutoff there, Uh, Yeah, red red button.
4: Yeah. Well, the best thing to do is just change the beckets, and then they can't get caught. (laughs) Next time. Next time, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) uh, There's some pictures, old pictures of the harbor people have uh, around here, and the boats back in the early 50s were a big boat was probably 25 feet long. Yeah had no, it didn't have the big diesels in it, it just had the little making breaks in it. Yeah. The, what we call them putt putts yeah. And uh they fished with that, but the, these fellas never went very far. They didn't they didn't they just fished around the islands here and they never went offshore like they are now. And you know they put 10 traps on a boat. That's boat all they can carry the <laughs> boats, went, they were narrow and they weren't very big. But uh, the lobsters hadn't really caught on like they have today. The markets, it was really tough to get them to the market alive. That's why the problem came in. They didn't have the, when I was a child, they didn't have the refrigerated trucks. Uh, and most of them went by sailing vessels. And if they got to Boston, they did well. That was about the extent of the time that they could uh, be out of the water. And they would ship them in the hole on ice and transport them that way. But uh, it wasn't a big industry as such as it is today. Everybody built their own traps. They Everybody knit their own meshes the the heads that we call them and uh there wasn't any wire traps wasn't any big 45 foot boats and with big diesels in them and running 30 40 miles offshore so it was it was a different different way to live but they used to feed them to the prisoners in Thomaston for punishment food and I don't know if there's anybody still alive over there or not that got that. But if they are, they're probably hoping that that program will return.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, right.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I suppose they boil them for maybe uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, make them all good and rubbery, too, for more punishment. You know.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, this is punishment food after all. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And it is interesting the boys who who are lobstering in the winter now they don't they're not fishing the same ground they fish in the summertime and they are going right outside I mean as you say 30 40 miles offshore sometimes
4: Yeah my son fishes there right? big I go water. The, we leave Yeah a lot of times we leave about 2:30 in the morning Yeah and we'll steam off there through four. takes us about 3 hours to get out there or so and uh we start hauling with spotlight. We fish till the sun goes down, turn the spotlight back on, keep fishing, and about five o'clock in the afternoon, six o'clock, five thirty, so we'll start steaming for home. And uh, Again, we'll there's
0: sit. expenses uh, considerably involved there. Boat, gas, crew, you know, overhead. Um, yep. just by
4: being out there,
0: you got you got to uh, fish hard.
4: If you're out there, you' almost got to stay because it's so expensive to go, you know, yeah, and as long as you you uh, boat isn't icing up you can you can work pretty cold weather so did, did uh, twenty to eighteen degrees is your cutoff point uh. when the when the traps come up when the wind is blowing and the temperature is down that low, when the trap hits the rail, the lobsters will shoot their claws off, Whoa. So you don't, you don't get the love. So if it's, if it's below 20, you just stay home. Yeah. You don't go. Hmm. Yeah.
1: So when you're fishing with the, with your lights, um, have you seen anything be attracted to those lights?
4: Once in a while, you might see a a school of fish that have uh, been hanging around. The water temperature has a lot to do with what you see. And the uh, water temperature right now is about forty degrees in the ocean here, Yes. Yeah. So most of the fish, as as we know it, the mackerel, the herring, and all of that, they've they've migrated south. They've they've gone down south. But uh, no, you don't. See, you see the you see the whales. They they hang around quite late, and uh, swordfish, sunfish. Uh, even they've even seen sharks in here around the islands this last summer.
1: I heard that.
4: Yeah. One, one of the boys came in and, uh, he, uh, had a big beard on him and he said the, the shark followed his trap right up, came right up, right up to the rail of the boat. Huh? And I said to him, well, well you know why he came up, don't you? He said, why is that? I said, well, that beard, you look like a fur seal. He was hungry. <laughs> so, he hooked on to you. <laughs> he said, "He said that thing was ten, twelve feet long."
1: <laughs>
4: yeah, he said the big, big fish, big fish.
1: He he probably was smelling. He
4: he sees something in the trap, either the bait or whatever got it, got the scent of it, and he yeah chased it right to the right to the surface.
1: So, how many boats have you had over the years?
4: I've had five. Yeah. Wooden boat, a brand Somebody, new wooden boat when they, years ago when they built them of uh, what they call clench nails with a yeah. galvanized nail yeah. and they drive it through the plank, through the rib and yeah, then one the guy on the inside over. the boat, he'd put a hammer on the nail and the guy outside keep hitting it until it bend it over into the uh, rib. Uh, Most generally, the boats uh, would probably go 10, 12 years because they didn't fish all winter. They fished mostly in the warm months. And a lot of the old fellas used to go, they'd switch over and they'd go cut the firewood for the next year. They would go scalloping, get some scallops and things like that, you know. But it wasn't, uh, you might say, as commercial as it is today. Technology today is, is incredible. You, you, I go aboard my son's boat and I'm just standing there amazed at what they can see. When I started, I just had a compass and we chased the compass around the bay. We had the, we had the courses written down on the window frame. We would have the direction or the degrees either way and then we would have the time alongside of it how long how long a time it took to before you change course and it worked it worked well in the fog because you could run the time down the course down and then you knew you had to change there was something there you would change we didn't have many charts as such it was done for memory and done uh for time and Direction, so it was a different. Diff- now these guys go; they turn the GPS on. It's got a tracking uh, line on it, and they don't need to look at nothing. They just follow that tracking line. Yeah, the whole whole different ball game.
0: It's a wonderful time to be
4: a navigator. You didn't know you need to grow up to be a computer programmer to run a boat, you know. Yeah. Well, the only problem with the GPS it tells you where you are, but it don't tell you where anybody else is.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I'd, I'd um, uh, if I could only have a GPS or a radar, I'd rather know where I am all the time. Honestly, we'll yeah. do with other people. You know, there's other ways.
4: Yeah. You need, you need the radar to go with it to see where, especially if yeah. it's nighttime or a thick fog so that, you know, who else is, is there.
0: Not a fan of thick fog or bow fog. I call it and barely see the bow. Not a fan of that, you know? And, uh, again, um, do you run around uh, ringing the bell, blowing the horn all the time?
4: We we use the we use the horn. We blow the horn, but we're we're uh, most generally alert to the radar. Yeah, I set mine on a very short lead. Yeah, maybe maybe three miles. No 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 more than three miles. Mm-hmm. That's pretty close. But,, uh, if we're in the ocean, we go even a little further. you can you can pick up a tanker at ten miles, but it doesn't take him long to cover ten miles. No, I can tell you, because you're fishing twenty traps on a line, and it takes twenty it takes quite a lot of time to get them twenty aboard the boat. And if you see a tanker on the horizon, you won't have time to get those traps on the boat before he's on you. Those fellas move. And like I told my son, I said, you know, there's nobody on the bridge. They're down asleep. They're on automatic pilot. They run over this 800-foot tanker, ran over a 50-foot boat. They wouldn't even wake them up. They wouldn't even feel it.
0: It can happen.
4: You know? So you you have to be uh, on your game, so to speak. 100% hundred percent of the time. There's no no room for error. Just swim sure if you get run over out there.
1: Does your boat have an AIS?
4: No. No. I steer it. No no automatic pilots, no nothing. Just uh, I have radar and GPS. GPS has a plotter on it that I can plot where the traps are and uh, has seven different colors on it so that you can each day change the color as you go so you know which trap you hold and which one you haven't. And then at the end of the day, you delete that color of the string of the group you're working on, and you've got your new color up. So how long Um, do you usually let them sit? Let them sit, yeah. With 800, I fished 800. How many days? uh, i do about two, 250 a day. We cover a lot of ground. It's pretty hard to bunch them all up in one area. If you get, if there's nothing there, you get nothing. So you, you kind of feel your way around the bay to find out where they are. Yeah. The lobsters is, I always compare it to a snowstorm. You go to bed tonight, everything looks calm. The stars are all out. You get up in the morning, there's six inches of snow on the ground. Lobsters pretty much same way. Nobody tells you when they're coming, or they're there. You have to you have to find that out for yourself. So the the best way to find it out is to scatter your traps around, so you can find out which way they're moving. Doesn't help part of the time. We're working in the fog, and then
0: working at a craft which is underwater, uh, where you can't see, or and you don't
4: swim, do you, Leroy? No, I don't. No, probably 98% of the fishermen in this town don't swim. Yeah. Lobster would be easier if they lived in trees is what I'm saying. You know, if you could see them. Yeah. And where are you going anyway? If you fall overboard, the boat's going ahead 15 knots. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to swim to? Well, you know, I can tread water for a long time.
1: Not at 40 degrees. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, you know, things happen so quickly. By the time you realize something has happened, it's already over yeah and you can have you can have the bow full of survival suits, but if if you don't have one on, it's not good, yeah, and they're pretty hard to work with them on they're They're quite bulky, but it's a dangerous job, but you you have to be ever mindful of your circumstances around you. That's the most important thing. You keep off the rope, you never stand on the rope, regardless, never ever stand on that rope keep it away from your feet and if the traps go aboard snarled up so be it you can get them back but you get out of that boat and you you gotta turn on your leg with 20 traps on it and you're in 725 feet of water you're not goodbye you're gonna be dead before they ever get you out of the water
1: yeah
4: yeah It's you at all all over
1: we uh, started talking about boat shops, boat building shops in the
2: area.
4: When you get into a shop and somebody's working on a boat or building a new boat, even in a rowboat, it's very, very interesting. You know, to sit there and watch you lose you lose track of time really quick. Hmm. Half an hour goes by really, really fast. What was your last wooden boat? It was a. Uh, 32 foot it was it built on the lines of a it was it was like the somewhat on the eye of, model of frankie day boat you know frankie day boat yeah yeah yep. Yep. arnold day yep yeah i had one of their models yep. i had one of. Uh, this one was built in on the island here fellow down in oceanville built it the gross you might have heard of him and uh it was, it was a good, it was a nice boat. Easy, low shear, and uh, I always liked the wooden boat. The wooden boat will give, they'll twist, they'll, whatever you're doing, they ride a lot easier, and the longer they're in the water, the better they ride, because they get heavier and heavier and heavier. <laughs> so they don't go as fast, but uh, the maintenance, it takes, it takes a lot of maintenance to keep up with one if you're really working a wooden boat hard, if you get 10 years out of it, you do well. So they figured the life of a wooden boat is seven to 10 years. So I had that, I bought it secondhand and I had it five years. I uh, replaced the engine twice and uh, my son built a new boat. And he had a Mitchell Cove fiberglass boat, and I thought I'd try that. And I wish I'd stayed with the wooden boat. There's no comparison. The fiberglass boats don't give. When you hit a sea, it's just like running into a wall. And The, the Mitchell Cove's got big, wide bows on them. and they, uh, they're, they're, There's just no give to them. They're not an easy boat to work out of. I didn't think. Yeah. I didn't I, w- I didn't care for it. I had it for five years and then I sold that and went back to the wooden boat again.
1: Huh. So, I wish I wish John Hansen was or John Johansen was here. He uh he told the story of one time when he was talking to a doctor, a, a bone doctor who had actually studied fishermen, and he says in his study that they've determined that if you have a wooden boat, your knees will last ten years longer.
4: Yeah. Amen. He's probably right, because yeah. there, there's no give on a on a fiberglass boat. It, even in a, a short chop, what we call a short chop, the, the bay is white with a chop. And every time you, you've you seen a Boston whale go, yeah. bang, 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 bang. Yeah. You know, if, if you go 10 miles, it'll beat you to death. So the fiberglass boats... We'll do the same thing if the sea's a little bigger and you're putting the power to it. The one I had had a 350 horsepower uh, Caterpillar engine in it with a two and a half to one reduction, and I mean it would it would go go a lot faster than I wanted to go. So I I never used the the full capacity of the engine. It would turn almost 3,000 rpm, and I never run it over 1,900. And I was doing fifteen knots in, and I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even get a chance to eat my sandwich. I'm on the next string already. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I didn't, I didn't care for it. I really didn't. It was a nice boat, but, but I, I just didn't care for it. It, it is hard on your legs. Got to rebuild a couple of. Uh... Wooden Jones porters
0: over at East Blue Hill a few years back. Fisherman who had one of them came over and checked her out. He had gone into a, a glass, um, I think it was a Mitchell Cove, and uh, he says, it makes my knees shake. It's like working inside of a damn tin drum, you know? <laughs> yeah. it, the boat doesn't absorb vibration the same way the wood boat does, just no, no. the engine,
4: if nothing else, no. you know? Yeah. I know a lot of these fellows locally here, uh, uh, they have the uh, – I guess they're forty-two, 45 foot boats, and they're going back to wood. The guys yeah. are fishing offshore going back to the wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They they uh they're comfortable. They they work well. And uh, these these guys, the boats that they're getting is what they call Peter Cass. You ever heard of Peter oh. Cass? Oh yes. First class, uh, yep. Kind of the Cadillac of the business, you know. Yeah. He builds a nice boat, and uh, and as I, a
0: friend, a old hippie friend of mine, uh, a long time ago, his dad used to work for DuPont. He used to say, "Better living with chemistry, man." To everything, okay. And nowadays, we've got some good chemistry. They can, we've got stuff the old fellas didn't have to work with, so things can last longer nowadays. They're put together right, you know. Yeah paint, epoxy, the, you know, the, um, uh, sealants that we got nowadays. Uh, you know, it's a good time
4: to, like say, to be a boat builder. Most of these guys, are, they have two stern men and the captain just sits in his big soft chair and runs boat. Yeah. He does the thinking and, and places the traps and he just nods his head. Yep. That's when the traps go board. Nobody talks. Everybody just keeps busy. So they, they hold 400 a day. Did you mostly fish by yourself, Leroy, or did you take I did. man? I did. Yeah.
0: Yep. I did. And again, you got to look out more for yourself when you're out there by yourself.
4: Yep. Well, I took the old fella with me. You know, the old fella lives upstairs. <laughs> okay, yep. Gotcha. Yeah, he watched out for me. <laughs> Good deal. Yep. Yeah. But deal. as I say, you know, you got to be. Paying attention. Simple as that. Yeah. If you're not paying attention, you're going to get hurt. Check out the
0: center for Main Center for Coastal Fisheries, and then you start to volunteer over there. That's how this got going, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, I worked. I worked over to uh, Greenhead Lobster in the retail room, and then Tate and I have been doing videos here since last summer. So uh, it's been uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it.
0: Had a lot you of film questions. them right at the town landing, don't you? Pardon? You film them right at the town landing, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Right, out in front of, right out in front of everybody. That's got to be kind
4: of fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had WABI down here. They did an interview, a live one. And I got interviewed from the Washington Post and from the uh, Boston Globe. And, you know. Everybody says, well, how does it feel to be a star? And I said, I don't see one. (laughs) What you see is what you get. Stay humble. And i just passing on some knowledge that uh, people don't get ordinarily a chance to hear or see. A lot of people visit here in the summertime, all these coastal towns, all up and down the coast of Maine. They see the beautiful boats in the harbor but they never really understand what it is that these folks do for a living. You know, it'd be like us maybe going out in Kansas, seeing this farm equipment. And the guy tells you, get up in the cab and run it. Go ahead. You know, you wouldn't have a crew.
1: It'd be foreign.
4: Yeah, it would. So these these folks have, have called in with some really, really good questions and, uh, We try to answer them to the best of our knowledge, what I've learned over the years. And uh, it's been really good. They've had uh, Paul, the boss here. Paul Anderson. Yeah, Paul Anderson. He said the emails have been incredible that he gets. Hmm. So he's really been pleased with the videos that we did. I think up to now, I think we've done like 16 or 17 different ones. And we're going to go keep doing them. We got some questions to answer on the next one, and we've been over to the processing plant in Bucksport, and I'm going to tell you that's quite a that's quite the thing to see. That'll be on video. I hope to cook cook the lobsters and pick them in state of the art over there. Those machines are in the millions, all computerized, everything.
1: So Computerized they, lobster pickers?
4: Well, the, no, the the women pick the lobsters. Okay, but the <laughs> machines are, are set up with a computer on timing and checking the uh, salinity of the water and all of that to keep the product like it would be if you just took it out of the bay down here and cooked it. You know, huh? It's quite the it's quite the process, I guess. When it's full up, fully going. There's almost 100 people working there. It's a big place. It's a big place. And uh, they do a good job. Really do. And they have a a, a nitrogen freezer that after the meat is cooked and picked and packed, they bring it back out and put it into a nitrogen freezer and it's frozen instantly. And uh, gives it a shelf life of two years. Believe wow. it. Or not. So it's it's quite incredible. The process is really quite incredible. Huh. I don't know who thought that machine up, but you know, I'll tell you, he way hit me. <laughs> <laughs> I get a handful of wooden wash tub. That's my cooker.
0: <laughs> Leroy, you're famous for being on the internet, but you don't you don't go on the internet, do you? No, I don't have one.
4: Yep. I'm still working with a rotary phone. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. I I have, I guess, uh, the wife and I are talking, and, and we got two granddaughters that's out in the Midwest uh, teaching college, and uh, we'd like to get, you know, do like we're doing here. You can call them and put them on the screen and see yep. them more often instead of once a year, you know. Yeah. Yep. yep you can have a good chat with them so I think probably it'll come and again doing it at the public
0: landing you get a lot of feedback you get you get people say oh it's that
4: famous guy you know yeah.
0: it's that guy we from the know, internet
4: out here one day on, out the back here and people from in town the visitors we looked up and they probably 50 75 of them there like I say right at the town landing yes, great public. so I I uh, told them i said join in you got any questions have at it we'll answer them for you Perfect. So they did. <laughs> it was it was pretty funny really you know they they joined right in they they liked the information
0: when we started doing boat talk we uh filled in a little bit in the summertime uh, joel white maynard bray had done it originally from yep. over the wooden boat yeah and uh but that you know, they had let that go. And we were asked to do it. It went quite well. And then they said to us, well, you're going to have to do this all year round. And I was horrified. I said, what will we talk about in January? It's one of the stupidest things I ever said. If we ever
4: run out of things to talk about, we're not looking at it. Right. You agree no, with that? I mean, it, Cause it's a year round job. Yeah. A lot of them don't fish in January, but it's still a year round job. They get That's all the crap, buoys, rope. I mean, there's a lot to do. You got eight hundred traps. You got a you've got a full plate ahead of you. All went along. Another thing we like to say on boat talk: you can't fake experience.
0: That's right. (laughs) You know. Yeah. You got to put, but you've got to learn from the mistakes of others. You ain't got enough time or lives to make all those mistakes yourself. So uh, you got to be learning all the time. Yeah. And like I say, uh, yeah. (laughs)
4: Life is Uh, life is a learning process.
0: On when a you good stop day
4: and you probably stop living
0: on a good day yes yeah 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 Leroy, yeah. I like to say I'm smarter than wood on a good day you know
4: <laughs> and you've had to grow up to be smarter than a lobster yeah well, yeah, you gotta figure out you know it takes a long time to to uh, study them. and they're not always their habits aren't always the same in other words, you might have caught them around a big island uh last year and done well, this year you might not get nothing there. They've moved location, they yeah. around somewhere else. So you got to go find them. And they do, I always figure, you know, if there's 30 traps around the rock, I'm not going in there. There's already 30 there. So I'll go down the mud and dump mine off. I always figure the lobster has legs and he does walk around. So if he's on the mud and he's hungry, he'll go in there uh i i got one i got the 100 percent chance of catching him on the mud whereas in the rocks it's a 30 traps there i got one in 30 so figure the odds think out of the box and it's surprising how well it works now leroy got a, a question to ask everybody and
0: and uh you can change the terms it'll work for you too um what happened you, when you was growing up, messed you about being a fisherman. You, you grew right into it. You're born to it, though, weren't you?
4: Yeah, I went with my dad in a rowboat. We started in a peapod. You know what a peapod yeah. is? And we rode it, and we had maybe eighty traps. And I rode. He did. He tended the traps, and we went all around these islands. We put in long days. Yeah. But we got thirty cents a pound for lobsters. And But you could buy a bushel of heron for a quarter. So now a box of one of those fish totes full of heron, you're looking at a $100 bill.
0: And you can't get the heron all the time either.
4: No, nope, can't get that. And then they bring in rockfish from British Columbia. That's a dollar a pound for love to bait.
0: Yeah.
4: So you know, on a, on a good day, when uh, I go offshore with my son, uh the expenses alone would be about fourteen hundred dollars to go. That's well, a hard start. So that's 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 a you know, you gotta really put your nose to the grindstone to make a profit. And but so what a beautiful with, factory the nose, you you just stay there.
0: Imagine having some kind of factory had so much value can keep so many people working and fed, you know, as the ocean is.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's a job. It's a job. I tell people, they say, well, you know, I don't know how you do it. I said, it's a job you have to like. It's like any job. If you like the job, it's not work. If you like what you're doing, you get up in the morning and just go do it. It's not a job. You enjoy it and uh but it, it there's a little more to it than just having a job you also want to make a living so you got you got to put that factor into it too you know but you it's it's paying attention thinking out of the box a lot of times it's like when the once a month the tides are really high and then they're really low and when that happens if the lobsters are in around these islands and they're up on top of these shoals, when those tides start running, they'll go off of them shoals down into the deep water. So you have to watch your tide calendar when them tides are making up so that you've already got your traps down the deep water waiting for them. So you, you learn from doing a lot of times, you know, it's, it's uh. It's a lifelong learning process. It really is.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Leroy, I've, I've heard stories about—I'm um, not sure what you call them—people who would sort of watch where you're putting your traps, and then they'd come and put them in the, more or less the same place because they figured yep. you knew uh, knew what you were doing. And I heard stories about some guys got tired of having them always. Put all these traps around their own traps, so they intentionally put them into some bad places, just so that they pile their traps into the same bad place.
4: Yes, yeah, cement blocks work good.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Just cement block I used, to a buoy. I, I used yeah, to use a lot it... of
4: cement blocks. Just tie some cement blocks on a line with a buoy on it, and put it where you want them guys to go, and they'll chase you right in there. <laughs> 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 yeah, there's all, all kinds of things you can do and the, I used to go out here and just a, not too far from the dock and I had four or five traps on the mud and I'd get on the average day I'd get like 50 pounds out of them so I didn't get through the end and the guy saw me so I picked up the traps and put them on the stern so he didn't bother to set them there he figured there was nothing there so he chased me around the biggest part of the day to find out where I was going to put them, and then he got tired of it, and he went and tended his own business. So at night when I came back in, I put the trash back where I had them. <laughs> <So> I <laughs> sent them yeah. back. So, yeah. Well, yeah, we call them shadows, them fellas that do that. Shadows, yes. Yeah, it comes to shadow. Uh-huh. And it's surprising how before they never figure it out, you know. But most generally... It can be quite a competitive sport. It's very competitive, yeah. It's very competitive. Yeah.
0: And and sometimes the boys will play uh, a bit rough as well, you
4: know. Yeah. But we also have some people that will... be in... Uh, molest your traps. We have people that will pull your traps and... Steal your lobsters and all of that, and uh, they don't last too long. They get caught quite quick. Yeah.
0: We like to point out, according to Maine law, you get yourself a license. You can put a trap anywhere you want, but in actual fact, you cannot put a trap anywhere you want. Most water in Maine, it's territorial.
4: No, no that's know? right. Yeah, the, the state had one and set there's of reasons laws. for that. It's worked in the fi- Yeah, the state has their set of rules and laws, and the fishermen have their set, and they're quite different.
1: That's Leroy Weed. Ask Leroy on YouTube. He's interesting to talk to, and he has a lot of good information. So much so that we ran out of time this month, and we'll have to put Part 2 into March. Who knows what else we might have then? Mike had some thoughts on that.
5: Comments, criticisms, other kinds of suggestions. Um, do you have an old favorite Boat Talk that you might like to have replayed while we still have extra time to fill? For instance, um, Alan surprised me last month and dug up the um, first time we went down to Addison to meet the raw faith people. And I thought that was a piece of old radio because... Of course, that Lafayette story led to so much more and, um, you know, some of, one of the best ongoing relationships of my life still with uh, my friend Tom McKay. So, uh, like I say, any old favorite Boat Talks, comments, criticisms, some kinds of suggestions at Talk at Hotmail or Talk at gmail.com also. Info at WBRU.org slash Boat Talk. Come back to us, please, anytime. Thank you.
1: The hour has sailed right by, and we're headed towards the 5 o'clock hour. Thanks to the Boat Talk storage shed builder, Barney Walls, and Chief Engineer, Sparky Burns. Don't forget to get the link. For Boats Light Up My Life at Belfast Free Library website for the show tonight. For those of you listening to this boat talk from the WERU archives at some other time, the Belfast Free Library has recorded the talk and it should be at their website. Thanks for listening and stay safe.